everybody who listens to futureprimitive.org. I'm very happy to be on the phone with Dennis McKenna. He is an American ethnopharmacologist, an author, and brother to well-known psychedelic proponent Terence McKenna. McKenna's research led to the development of natural products for Avida Corporation, as well as greater awareness of natural products and medicine. He has authored numerous scientific articles and books. He has co-authored The Invisible Landscape with his brother Terence McKenna and spent a number of years as a senior lecturer for the Center for Spirituality and Healing, part of Academic Health Center at the University of Minnesota. He is now a senior research scientist for the Natural Health Products Research Group at the British Columbia Institute of Technology in the Vancouver area. So, Dennis McKenna, PhD, Dr. McKenna, is that, uh, was that an up-to-date bio? It, it more or less is up to date, and uh, thanks, Joanna, for letting me speak to your audience for doing this podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, it is more or less up to date. Uh, it, these things are always changing, but I'm still teaching at the uh, University of Minnesota in the Center for Spirituality and Healing, which is uh, not a uh, cult. It just sounds like one. <laughs> Uh, it's actually the alternative and complementary medicine program here, and that is that is where ethnobotanists and ethnopharmacologists and people like me tend to get uh, slotted these days. Uh, you know, I, I don't think of what I do as alternative medicine, but others do. So here I am, and I'm happy to be, you know, to have a position here. Yes. Um, I, I teach uh, three courses here, two of them at the University of Minnesota. One is called um, People, Plants, and Drugs, an Introduction to Ethnopharmacology. The other one is called uh, uh, Botanical Medicines in Healthcare. It's much more sort of buttoned down, uh, addressed to nurses and pharmacists and doctors, although anyone can take it. And then the one that people might be most interested in that I teach is I teach uh, a course in Hawaii uh, every January called Plants in Human Affairs, mm-hmm. and that is that is taught. My my co-instructor on that is Kathleen Harrison, who is uh, also uh, my brother's ex-wife, but yes. also a well-known ethnobotanist in her own right. So we we have teamed up to teach that course, and most people really enjoy that course. Well, it's good to know that these things are available, Dennis. And uh, I was thinking that um, I'd like to concentrate with you for a while on uh, the project that you posted on this wonderful website, kickstarter.com, um, uh-huh. which seems to be a project for an alternative economy, which I think is marvelous. And I'll let you elaborate on what 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 it is. But 
you've posted a project where you speak about the fact that you would like to write an autobiography about your life with your brother Terence McKenna and also your findings since um, Terence died in 2000, I think it was. So speak about why now, uh, why you are enthusiastic about writing this book now and somewhat what it's about without letting the cat out of the page. <laughs> As it were. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, to talk about that, Joanna, and, and thank you for, for giving me the chance to let folks know uh, about it because it really, it's a collective effort. Uh, just uh, to put it out there, if people are not familiar with kickstarter.com, that's the website, and the name of my project is The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. Great. And so if you go to Kickstarter and you search on that or you search on my name, it will come up. And why this? Well, I was recommended to try this, actually, by one of Terrence's old uh, literary agents. I approached him. When I got the idea to, to write this book, I have a feeling in my gut that now is the time, and I'll get to that in a minute, but uh, Terrence's old agent, who I highly respect, and Brockman. said, uh, we should try this. You know, he told me about Kickstarter, and he said, give it a try. You know, you can always get an agent later if this doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So I'm following his advice, mm-hmm. and uh, so far... So good. Um, I've set a high bar. Uh, we're more than halfway there, and I hope that if we just keep spreading the word, that uh, you know we will get enough support to make this happen. So, so this is kind of a, an anxious period because I don't know if it's going to work. I would much rather, you know, have the, uh, you know, reach the threshold. Then we can all relax because we know it will be done, and I can concentrate on what I really want to do, which is begin to write this book. And I guess the question is, why now, and why this, and all that? Uh, Mm -hmm. Well, we're we're in a time of thresholds, for one thing. And uh, from my personal point of view, I crossed a big threshold in December, which is I turned 60. And if that's not sobering, I don't know what is. (laughs) You know, it reminds you that you are mortal and you're not going to be around forever. And so I felt that I felt for a long time that I need to tell the story. You know, Terrence is such a, a legend, really, in the psychedelic community. And I guess I get a little of that, but I've never really told the story from my own point of view. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought that now is the time uh, to do that. I, I want to tell it. I'm in a position where I can make some time to write it, and that's partly what the Kickstarter you know, funding will do. And we have to get this tale out there before 2012, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Before the world ends in 2012. <laughs> that's the other end of the, you know. <laughs> So, so I figure if, if I can roll it out by September 2012, 
people will have time to read it before the world ends. Right. If the world doesn't end, they can then give it to their friends for Christmas or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have both options. So we get it both ways. The world doesn't end, and we have a Christmas present. <laughs> right, right. It'll, it'll make a great Christmas present. So I, I'm kind of, I don't know if the world's going to end, and I don't think anyone does. I'm, uh, I'm a scientist, and so it's okay for me to withhold judgment. You know, scientists uh, get paid to uh, hedge their bets. And I'm just sort of saying, we no one really knows. Let's just wait and see what what happens. And uh, I'm hopeful that uh, it's not going to be the collapse of the continuum or or any any global disaster. Um, but there is no doubt that uh, that change is accelerating. Uh, I think we all have that sense that we're approaching you know, some sort of singularity point, mm -hmm. some sort of major shift in global consciousness. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's already happening. We, we don't have to wait until 2012. All we have to do is uh, look around us and, you know, we see that this is going on. So, you know, so now now's the time, I think, to... To tell this, to share this tale with the, with the world, you know, uh, before I get too old that I can't remember anything. Right. Well, I I have a burning question uh, for you, Dennis. Okay. Um, I'm fascinated by the things that uh, Terence said about language. I'm totally in love with language, and then language is very connected with uh, the experience at La Chorera. So mm -hmm. I want to know if you feel that your language in telling the story will have meaning for the event horizon that's coming up. That will have meaning for the event horizon? Yes, that uh, that you have developed a language that will contribute to the reality that we are creating at this time for 2012. Well, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I can promise <laughs> that. Um, I, uh, it's interesting that, that you should, you know, you should make, that connection to language, because you're right, the experiment at La Chirera was very much about language and about our, you know, efforts to, uh, I mean, if, if there is any way to summarize what we were trying to do in our sort of deluded mindset at that time, mm -hmm. we were trying to fuse mind and matter, and we were trying to fuse, in a sense, meaning and matter, and that's what language does. It's a carrier of meaning. We were trying to actually go the next step and create a language that you could actually see. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that to, that to behold it would be to understand it or to utter a phrase or a word in this language would be to manifest that, that thing or that event. Now, don't tell me, you know, don't tell me this doesn't make sense. I mean, no, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> oh, I won't. <laughs> Definitely. But, it, but, it, 
but that was what that was what we were being told. And interestingly, um, several years later, I stumbled across a website that some people may know called Zeno uh, Linguistics. Uh, are you familiar with? No. X E N O. Well, it's uh, it's by a very smart uh, young woman. Well, she's not she's not that young. She's younger than I am for sure. But she's a computer scientist, and she wrote a very interesting novel called uh, The Maze Game. It was a science fiction novel, and it was dedicated to Terence and myself, which is what got my attention when she just mailed it to me out of the blue and this book shows up and uh, the book is all about a future society that uses this uh, this visible language which is called glide in the novel and uh, in order to write the novel she actually invented this language mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and so you can you can go to xenolinguistics.com and see numerous numerous demonstrations of this visible language. Now, it's not quite what Terence and I had in mind when we tried to, uh, you know, collapse the continuum. But it's it's pretty interesting. It's a good stab at uh, at you know trying to create a, a meta language essentially that carries more meaning you know, in, in the visual realm than it does in the auditory or verbal realm. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's worth looking at. Uh, you know, um, I mean, uh, one of the things that we had noticed about psilocybin particularly, and, and when we went to La Chirera, we were taking probably entirely too much psilocybin mm-hmm. um, because that's what was there. Too many and, cows. Uh, It's not why we went there, but that's what we ended up, uh, it turned out that was the major plant teacher that was there at at La Chirera. And uh, we had an opportunity to eat quite a lot of it on quite a regular basis. And what emerged out of that was that, you know, this experience is something like a direct experience of the Logos if you will. You know, the Logos is sort of the primal language that is meaning itself, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, within these deep psilocybin states, there was always a sense of being close to the Logos. And if if you could somehow find a way to express that in a perfect way, and that's what we were trying to do in, in, in far from a perfect way, far in a sort of feeling our way along, you know. Um, we felt that we were in, in connection with uh, what we called the teachers or mm-hmm. the teacher mm-hmm. who was uh, essentially suggesting these experiments that we could do to, to manifest this, this visual language, this thing that would you know, it would be a, a physical object. It would be partly made up of your mind and partly made up of sound and partly made up of matter. And uh, it would be the ultimate artifact. Um, so I feel that this uh, closeness with the logos will 
infuse your book, and I'm really excited about that. So I want to uh, say something to you, Dennis. One of the most touching things for me about your story in True Hallucinations is the way that um, Terence and you uh, were together after you had this, you, Dennis, had this overwhelming experience and the ten- tenderness that... Uh, transpired between the two of you so that you would come back to uh, uh, this world of language. Yeah. Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, and, and that, that does seem to, you know, to speak to people and it certainly speaks to me. I mean, you know, tongue-in-cheek, I, I sometimes say, well, you know, Terrence, uh, you know, tried for 20 years to drive his little brother crazy. <laughs> He finally succeeded, and then he had two weeks to fix it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. But, but on, a, on a more serious level, it's true. I mean, it was the dynamic between the two of us uh, that got us through that. The fact that, you know, I mean, we were not the totality of the Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. We mm-hmm. were... You know, we were the two brothers, but there were three other people there, most of whom were pretty appalled when we began talking pretty funny about some of these ideas, you know. They thought that it was going off track, and in a certain way, you know, there was a certain segment of people that said, you know, you guys need to get to the nearest psychiatric facility, uh-huh. you know, and we kept putting them off. And uh, I'm so glad we did because because we, Terrence and I, at that time, we thought that we understood what was going on and we had this plan and uh, we might not have made sense to the other people in our group, but we made sense to each other. And so we were able to go ahead with the experiment at La Chirera and then and then, you know, deal with the with the fallout from that, which was really this two week period of revelations, uh, insanity, mm-hmm. uh, shamanic uh, initiation. I don't know how you characterize it. I mean I, I have thought about what happened. What was it really what was what really happened after we triggered this effect, whatever it was. Was it just a simultaneous psychosis? Or was it uh, a simultaneous shamanic initiation of some kind? Or or was it something entirely different than that? Some kind of real connection to uh, a source of wisdom or gnosis that was, that was not us, that was outside? I don't really know. I... I um, I, I, to be kind to myself, I think of it. I, if I if I look at a model to compare it to, I would say it it was a shamanic initiation of some kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, all the all the uh, all the motifs were there. Uh, not not that I consider myself a shaman. I'm not. But you know, at least no. I mean, I don't practice as a shaman. But I. I think it was. I think it was that. It was something like that, where mm-hmm. 
you know, mm-hmm. a transformative experience where you are basically torn apart. I mean, you're very familiar with all this mm-hmm. and, and, and put back together in a different, newer, and, and stronger form. Um, and that's what happened. And, and that's why I'm so grateful to Terrence for sticking with me through the process. I feel like if I had been airlifted out to some mental hospital, right. I probably never would have recovered. And uh, so he held them off, and he said, look, everything is okay. We just need to let this unfold as it is meant to. And he did. He stuck with it. I was certainly in no position to defend myself. And so in that respect, I'm very grateful to him because he he insisted that we just let this play out. And it did play out, and I am a much better person for it, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm not crazy. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm actually much stronger than I was then. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I think I'm one of the most sane people you'll ever know. Right, right. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's, inter- it's interesting uh, because uh, I know the experience of, um, and I won't say that's what happened to you, but I know the experience of being driven crazy by something. <laughs> And some of us are uh, blessed enough uh, to come out the other side more sane, in 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 my view of my experience, than I would have been if I hadn't been torn apart by that experience. So, anyway, um, I want to ask you um, a poignant question: Do you miss Terence, Dennis? Do I miss him? Yeah. Yes, I do, of course. I miss him a lot. Yeah. Um, I miss him. Uh, you know, it's a funny thing, though. I, I miss him in the sense that I can't sit across the room from him. We can't, you know, share a joint or share a conversation. And, you know, my memory goes back to those many hours when we did exactly that and the conversations we used to have. You know, when we weren't really anybody, when we were just enjoying each other and sharing these ideas that have preoccupied us for so long, I miss that part very much. On the other hand, I feel like he's so much a part of me that he's right there. You know, I mean, I can have a conversation with him in my head all the time, and I do. Uh, You know, in some ways... I used to tell people we were like right and left brain compliments to each other. You know, we had different areas covered and we were so much alike. Well, uh, alike is not the word. I mm-hmm. say complementary. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a situation comes up and I wonder what would Terrence say? I mean, I know what Terrence would say because I've got Terrence in my head. Fantastic. You know? Yes. And, uh, uh, and I frequently dream about him, um, you know, and I have good dreams about him. I mean, you know, like all siblings, we've had our issues, but but basically I feel like we're in good shape. I feel like wherever Terrence is, he's in a good place, and uh, I just feel his presence, you know, and it's it's made me think about, you know, I don't think anyone can say whether there is life after death 
I mean, many people will tell you that they can. I don't think anyone really knows. But what I do know is that a person lives on past death in the memories of their relatives, their friends, and all that. That is a real presence. And, and you know, Terrence has achieved this. I mean, it's so interesting that, uh, you know, his words, his writings and speakings uh, are as timely today as they were 20 years ago. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, so many of my students were, you know, they weren't even in elementary school when, when Terrence was, was out on the circuit, when he was kind of at the top of his career. Now they're taking my classes, mostly, probably about half of them, because they've read Terrence's stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very interesting that that still speaks to, um, you know, this generation of young people. So I want to go back to your book and uh, how wonderful it is that uh, you are choosing to write it and uh, the element of perhaps describing your relationship relationship in itself and how that relationship has evolved before and um, after Terence's death. Um, how long are you going to take to write this book? Let's say that... Uh, well, the, the time, projected time frame, if, uh, if the Kickstarter project works and we're going on the assumption of will, then I basically have uh, to about the end of January um, where I, I can clear my other affairs, I can take a sabbatical, essentially, from teaching. And uh, so uh, the, the hope is to have an unedited uh, copy finished in early spring and perhaps late, perhaps mid-February, and then work with an editor to refine that. So uh, the book should come out around uh, the fall of 2012. That's, that's the projection. Well, September of 2012. Now, you know, various things may interfere with that, but that's kind of what I'm shooting for. Um, I mean, it's a timely uh, time for it to come out, and it's also, you know, uh, I mean, I ought to be able to do it within that time. I know what I want to say. It's Mm -hmm. a matter of finding the the focus and the time to actually sit down and, and write the thing. So I want to send out... No, I, I optimistically say there will not be any... I, I will not suffer from writer's block or anything like that. That's always possible, but that's not my intention. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And you've written a lot, so... So I want to... In- I've never really written anything quite like this, but I have written a lot. I'm a good writer, and... Uh, and I know what I want to say. I know certain things that have to be in there. So, you know, if, if I put all that down and there's still things to say, then then I don't know. You know, then maybe I'll have to worry about writer's block. But for right now, um, there's plenty to say. And it's going to be, you know, in part a personal story that, you know, about the lives that we shared growing up and then as we got into these ideas and 
And, you know, most of our lives have unfolded since Lotcher era, so there will be a lot about that. But I also want to discuss some of the ideas that we, that we came up with and what are my current perspectives on things like the time wave, for example. Yes. Um, you know, I don't necessarily buy Terence's theory about the time wave, at least not entirely, but I think it has, you know, a lot worth, uh, worth uh, discussing. So that, that will all be in there as well. So I really want to encourage people who listen to Future Primitive to uh, go to kickstarter.com and uh, I'm an enthusiastic supporter of this project. So um, the beauty of Kickstarter where you can, you can pledge um, some money to, um, to assist Dennis in writing and publishing this book, the beauty of... Uh, of this website where you can do that is that in my view it's about the new economy and the new economy for me is passing the money around to each other so whether it's twenty dollars or seventy five dollars and, and people shouldn't think of this as uh, these are not donations in the sense that you will get something back you it's more like a, at the lower levels of con Contributing, I'm, I'm essentially pre pre selling the book. Right. And at higher levels, I want to give something of value back. It gives the the creator a chance to essentially solicit funds, but not feel like you're begging. I mean, <laughs> you know, if if I get the money, uh, if if Kickstarter reaches its threshold, then I get the money, and then there's a huge. Uh, obligation on the part of the person to deliver to actually mm-hmm. do what they said they were going to do, and and I will I will move heaven and earth to deliver for my backers uh, and everyone else that now expects this movie this uh, this book to come out. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's 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 very good that way, and and also it's risk free in a certain sense. If the project doesn't make its threshold then nobody's credit card is charged, nobody spends any money, and the only person that uh, that loses, in, in this case, would be me because I set the bar too high, you know, but everybody else is protected. So, you know, their funds are not at risk until the project is fully funded. Yep. And uh, it, as you say, it's not a... It's not a free gift. It's uh, like uh, pre-selling the book. But also, I love to feel that I'm part of a group of people who are the wind at your back that um, that will help you uh, tell us this story. Mm-hmm. It's yes, that that is that's also true, um, and. In fact, I've been quite uh, moved by that and, and both moved and educated at the same time. Um, I have had very little to do with social media up till now, uh, but when I put this project out, I realized that's the only way you can, that's what makes something like Kickstarter um, you know, possible, mm-hmm. is that there are communities of interest out there. And you have to appeal to those. You you know you have to get them on board. And 
they have certainly gotten on board, and I'm grateful to not just the backers. I'm grateful to the backers, of course, but but to everybody that's tried to spread the word. You know, it's very interesting how this has worked. Uh, I guess you know it's the website is all over there, all over Facebook, or if you go to Facebook, there's a group for the project that you know you don't have to go to Kickstarter. But hopefully you will, because that's the only place mm-hmm. you can you can contribute. Right. But um, the word of it is pretty much all over right now, and that's good. And we just have to keep putting it out there, and uh, hopefully it will succeed. And then, and then when that happens, um, then the burden is on me to to use that money in a in a good way. But it makes a big difference knowing that the community now has got a stake in this, yes. right? It's not just me raising money. I feel like it's really a collective effort. And uh, that's interesting. That's an interesting feeling. Well, like, uh, it's attributed to Dennis that he said, find the others. So I wanted to ask you, perhaps you can answer this question. Why is the story of Dennis and Terence McKenna uh, also the story of our generation and has affected the future generations. Joanna, that, that's, that's, a, that's a tall order to answer that question. But, you know, I don't really know the answer. Uh, I don't think anyone is, but I think that our story resonates with uh, people. I think that part of it is you know, when it happened, it happened when we made the decision to go to La Chirera and look for and essentially abandon whatever career we might have had or whatever paths of political activism we were involved in. You know, something suddenly plumped down in front of us that said, this is more important than all that. You know, you should go look for this. This is a real mystery. And you know, being young at the time, being interested in adventure and being interested in real mysteries, it was clear that this is what we needed to do. And uh, uh, I think that many people have had that impulse, you know, certainly in our generation and and other generations. But the fact that we actually did it, you know, uh, gives us a certain appeal, we now have that story to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think I think that was part of it, was the idea that this was a genuine quest, and it certainly was. It turned out to be so for us, and that appeals to people. I think that, you know, beneath all that, I think that one of the factors that, if you will, uh, kind of underlies that is that people uh, have and I see it in this younger generation and also our older generation, Mm -hmm. people have a very deep need to connect with something that is spiritually meaningful. Mm -hmm. And our culture does not, by and large, provide that anymore. Uh, You know, conventional religions, uh, organized religions, have, have basically become political institutions, you know, whose job is to bludgeon people into thinking the way they're supposed to think, you know? So 
they've pretty much walled themselves off from any direct experience of, you know, the 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 mysterium tremendum. Mm-hmm. You know, the true mystery that cannot be interpreted through language, that cannot be, uh, you know, uh, just, uh, circumscribed by, by, by scripture or dogma. It is the quintessential one-on-one experience, you know, confrontation between the person and whatever it is, you know, the, the holy other, the, the mysterium tremendum, for lack of a better term. Yes, and so I think people are drawn to that, and uh, you know I think that is really, in some ways, I think that's the motivation behind a lot of the ayahuasca tourism that mm-hmm. you see now, or the the way that ayahuasca has begun to permeate our culture. Uh, you know, people can say, well, you know, people are, they're not serious; they're just going to South America to take drugs and have thrills. I don't see that at all. I see most of those folks, and I know many of them, you know, they're looking for something, some meaning in their lives, and they're not finding it in our culture. Mm-hmm. So they feel compelled to step outside our culture. And it was the same impulse, exactly, really, that led Terrence and I to go down there. I mean, the context was different. There was no ayahuasca tourism. There was None of that was available to people. There was, you know, sort of Western culture, which was which was confronting for the first time the psychedelic experience in the reality of LSD. There was Timothy Leary was sort of out there with his message mm-hmm. that people were hearing, but there was no. There was no, you know, there was no cultural context or historical context for it, and so I think people people were attracted to the chance, the fact that we stepped outside the culture, that we we said, well, right. we want to learn about these things. We've got to go talk to the people that have used them for thousands of years. Those are the ones that know how to use these these psychedelic uh, plants, and so we we went looking for it, and uh, as it turned out, we. We found it much more than we had bargained for. Yeah. Well, you've suddenly um, unlocked a door for me because um, a couple of years ago I reread all of Terence's books and um, I just realized while talking with you why I'm so excited about your book as well. It's because of this yearning to to understand or describe the mystery. And um, I think maybe um, together we can attempt to describe some of the mystery. That's why I like plant medicines, as you say, because they take me home closer to the mystery. Yeah, I think... I mean, I, th- I, th- I think so. I think... You know, these these questions are endlessly fascinating, you know, possibly because there are no real answers. There are there is no there is no set answer to this type of seeking. Everyone has to find their own answer somewhere within the context of of all of this. And so I think that's why in some ways the story of our adventure is 
quite personal for some people. It, I mean, people vicariously uh, take part in it, or, you know, and, and many people, it's not like we're the only ones that have ever gone off and, and sought this kind of thing, but we did, and we came back, and we have a tale to tell, and uh, people, you know, they want to hear that. Um, so that, that's what I'm going to attempt to do with this book. Good. Good, Dennis. And I wish you, uh, I wish you absolute success in, uh, in this adventure. And just want to ask you if there are a few words you'd like to say in closing. And, uh, my great gratitude to you for, uh, giving your time to Future Primitive today. Well, I, I'm grateful to you, Joanna, for giving me a chance to do this podcast, and uh, I will. Uh, I, I hope you can post it, and um, on, and I hope people get a chance to uh, to listen to it. Okay, good. Have a wonderful evening. Future Primitive is made possible by the Marion Institute. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider supporting our work by making a tax-deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org.